We don't want to necessarily trust our hearts. We don't want to trust our own internal moral compass because those things are broken. Those actually have to be realigned with Christ by the renewing of our mind, by just filling ourselves with the Word of God. And yet culture is telling you, no, 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 you're good. You're perfect just as you are. You just need to do more introspection, maybe just love yourself better or do more self-care. And then you'll be able to unleash all the goodness you find inside of yourself onto the world and live your true authentic self. Whereas Christianity says, you're, you know, whatever you find in there might be something that needs you need to repent of and you need to change about yourself. Let me just confess, I have a love-hate relationship with social media because of the memes. Like, who comes up with these things? Have you ever seen memes that say, live your truth, whatever that might be, follow your heart, or you only live once? They sound nice and positive, but when you take the time to think about them, you might realize, as I have, that they're not leading me toward truth. They're leading me away from truth. Some of these memes can do great damage to our souls because we have to be careful what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, Today on the Significant Women podcast, we are going to hear from Alyssa Childers. And let me tell you, she is going to help us with some of these issues. Welcome to the Significant Women podcast. I'm your host, Bible teacher and author, Carol McLeod. I can't wait for you to lean in and listen to my conversation with Alyssa Childers, who goes straight to the point of some of these confusing issues in her book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Isn't that the truth? Alyssa helps women uncover the common lies repeated within progressive circles. And she also helps us hold on to eternal truth found in the Word of God. Frankly, Alyssa is my kind of woman. Well, if this is the first time you've joined us, Significant Women is a podcast filled with stirring conversations about what it means to be a significant woman at this moment in history. The choices we make in our daily lives have the opportunity to make an eternal difference in the world around us. And if that's not what being significant means, I don't know what is. So now let's join my conversation with Alyssa Childers. Well, Alyssa, your claim to fame, so to speak, is that you were a member of Zoe Girl. And my daughters grew up on Zoe Girl. Tell us about that part of your life. Yeah, well, that was uh, a journey I took from about 1999 until about 2007 or 8, where Gosh, we got to tour all over the country and in different parts of the world. And one of the coolest things about that whole experience was getting to meet all of the little Zoe girls that <laughs> listened to our music <laughs> and would tell us stories about how our music maybe gave them confidence to be bold for Jesus on their public school campuses or just to, to kind of just grow in their face. So I'm really thankful for that a short period of my life where I got to have some pretty significant and amazing experiences as a part of that group. Yeah, as I was preparing for the interview, Elisa, I was thinking about the music of Zoe Girl. And two of your most popular songs were I Believe and 
with all my heart. And what's interesting is that after your Zoe girl experience, you weren't sure what you believed. And perhaps you weren't following Jesus with all your heart in a manner that you are now. So I know you've had a story. I know you've had a journey. So tell us about your crisis of faith. Yeah, well, uh, that's interesting that you would bring that up because just a couple of days ago, I was thinking about that song, I Believe. I actually wrote that song uh, for Zoe Girl. I did. And, you know, the lyrics being now, I'll shout it from the mountain. I'm not the same that I used to be. I believe in God. I'm not ashamed to talk about it. And for my entire life, Carol, those words were 100% true. All my time throughout being in Zoe Girl, um, just a joy to to talk about the Lord with people, my deep relationship with Him. So it wasn't until Zoe Girl came off the road that my husband and I started attending a church right in the heart of the Bible Belt here in Tennessee. And the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller study and discussion group that he said would be like seminary. He said, you go through this four-year class and you'll come out on the other side with a seminary level education. And this sounded really exciting to me because although I had loved Jesus my whole life and been deeply convinced in my bones that the Bible was his word and that I could trust his word and him, um, all of that foundation was really shaken by some of the skeptical claims that the pastor and others in the group and the books we were reading in the group brought against some of these core essential beliefs that I'd held my entire life. And so it threw me into a dark night of the soul that brought me, I, I would say, I don't want to exaggerate it, I didn't fully lose my faith, but it brought me to the edge of agnosticism where I mm. really really wasn't sure if everything that I had believed my whole life was even true or if God existed at all. And so I remember crying out to God one night and just saying, you know, God, if you're real, if all of this is true, I need you to send me a lifeboat because I felt like I'd been thrown into a stormy ocean of doubt with just these waves crashing over me. And God in his faithfulness led me to the study of apologetics and church history and theology and lots of other things, and really demonstrated to me the truthfulness of the claims of the things I'd believed my whole life. And so I was super thankful to God for rebuilding my faith that way. But that's really what's led me here to write a couple of books and and have a platform where I can help other people maybe walk through their own times of doubt, but also to help them interact with false claims about Christianity. Because in my story, of course, my faith was challenged in a church by a pastor. Mm -hmm. And this was a church that would later go on to become a progressive Christian church. And so that was a a big topic on my radar was to investigate the movement of progressive Christianity, which is what I do in my first book, Another Gospel. So I know you were raised in a Christian home, correct? That's right. How did your parents respond when you were going through this time? You said you're on the verge of agnosticism. How, How did your parents respond to that? Well, to be honest, I didn't really talk about it. I didn't really even tell my husband the depth of it because I didn't fully understand what was happening to me myself. Um, I didn't want to be in this faith crisis. I didn't want to not believe. And so I was afraid that if I talked about it, that I would rattle someone else's faith and send them into a time of doubt. Not that I really thought I would do that with my parents, but um, I just don't think I had enough self-understanding of what was going on at the time to even talk to them about it. So I didn't really share this with anyone because 
I, um, I just didn't really understand what was happening to me. And I think I was trying to muster all the faith I had to try to make it not be true. So there was this deeply inter- internal angst and anxiety that was going on deep inside of me all the while. I'm, I'm really trying to hang on to my faith and keep my kids in church and um, you know, all of that. So it, it's kind of one of those things where I didn't really fully understand what happened to me until a little bit later, maybe a few years after. So tell us what a progressive Christian is exactly. Do you have a definition for that? Yeah, well, I do, but I will say, I'll preface it by saying progressive Christianity is very difficult to define. And the Mm -hmm. reason it's difficult to define is because there are a lot of different beliefs that fall under that umbrella. It's very fluid. It's constantly changing. Uh, In fact, if I could update another gospel, I'd probably add two or three chapters just to update on where the movement's at. So it's hard to define as far as beliefs go, but where it might be uh, better to define is to zoom out just what it is as a movement. So uh, the most succinct way I could define it is that it's a movement of people coming up and out of the evangelical church who are open to redefining and and often rejecting core essential doctrines of the Christian faith. So one misunderstanding a lot of Christians have about progressive Christianity is they might think, oh, progressive Christianity, is that just maybe somebody that switched some political views or maybe they're just uh, open to embracing more authenticity in their lives or, you know, having more grace in their lives. It's it's really, if that's all it was, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't write a book about it. But what people need to understand is that as it's manifesting through the thought leaders, through the people who write the books, who are leading the movement, it's a movement that denies really core doctrines of the historic Christian faith, turning it into another gospel, which is why I titled my book, Another Gospel. Mm-hmm. So some of these core beliefs that they deny would be the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. Are those some of the things that they might deny? So yes and no. So uh, inerrancy, definitely. I, I don't know of any progressive Christian thought leader that will openly say the Bible from start to finish is inerrant. I I don't think there's any who would say that right now. Maybe there's somebody out there, but I think generally speaking, they've rejected that. Now, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you will hear progressive Christians say Jesus is Lord or um, that, you know, that he is the the king of the universe or whatever it might be. But um, that is defined in a, in a very different way than Christians have historically understood that to mean. Uh, so they'll reinterpret scripture in a way that's very cultural, you know, amenable to cultural morals. Um, they'll create a Jesus in their own image and still say that Jesus is Lord, but it's not necessarily the Jesus of scripture. Now, as far as the resurrection goes, there's a there's I find that to be the most diverse. You, you can have one progressive Christian who does affirm that Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, another who does not believe that that was actually a historical event. But they're fine to be in community together because in progressive Christianity, just the kind of the way it works, it's really not about what you believe. It's not about what you believe theologically. It's more about uh, what activism you're participating in. What what marches you're you know, protests you're marching in, what causes you're advocating for, what systems of oppression you're actively trying to tear down. So it becomes a very social justice gospel. Now, I will say this too, though. Progressive Christians are very diverse in what they might believe, but they're very united in what they deny about historic Christianity. So if we trace that along the narrative arc of the gospel, uh, just to give your your listeners and, and viewers a, a broad flyover. Now, certainly this does not apply to all progressive 
progressive Christians, but I'd say this is pretty unanimous among the thought leaders that are writing the books, is that they would deny that human sin separates you from God. So the message of progressive Christianity is not that you need to get saved, but that you just need to realize how inherently good and united with God you already are, uh, which of course is going to make the the cross unnecessary. It's going to make the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross something that is is roundly rejected in progressive Christianity. Many progressives believe that for God to require the blood sacrifice of his only son, this implicates his moral character. So that's out the door. Um, again, resurrection, There's it's a mixed bag there. Um, but, as, but as far as Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead, largely speaking, progressive Christianity is universalistic in that uh, in they're, they're rejecting the idea that there's a place of punishment called hell, that no matter what view they might take of what heaven's going to be like or the afterlife, it's going to be okay. Everybody is going to be with God. It's all going to be okay, according to progressive Christianity. So you can see as we trace it along that narrative arc, it really does present a very different picture of reality than, than historic Christianity does. So there's a phrase, um, Alisa, that's very popular today, and that's deconstructing your faith or deconstructionism. Um, is, is this what progressive Christianity has led to, or mm. is deconstructing your faith something different? Well, that's a fascinating question. So I'm right now, I'm currently researching and writing a book on deconstruction. So this is something that's really fresh in my mind. So uh, I don't know what causes what, to be honest, but I will say they're a little bit different in that deconstruction is more like a vehicle. It's It's a vehicle that takes you away from historic Christianity in almost every case. Uh, now, that can lead you to atheism or it can lead you to agnosticism. It can lead you to progressive Christianity. It can lead you to a different religion like Buddhism. It can lead you into the New Age. So in that sense, deconstruction is the thing that tears apart the foundations of historic Christianity. So in that sense, and anybody who is a progressive Christian— for the most part, will have been through deconstruction. But not everyone mm-hmm. in deconstruction ends up as a progressive Christian, if that makes sense. But they do work hand in hand. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So you have a new book out called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, which great title, by the way. But Thanks. one of the statements that I've read about your book is this, that you say that there's a big difference between living your truth and living the truth. And of course, I can assume what that means. But you're right, Alisa, that phrase, live your truth, has captivated people. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that in comparison to Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Right. Well, so live your truth is a cultural mantra. And it's really built upon a definition of truth called relativism, which basically Mm. just means that uh, what a person might think is true is just relative to each person. It might be different for each person. Now, most people don't walk through the world living as if relativism is true in every area. Most people believe that there's objective truth when it comes to math or science or you go to the bank or you you know the the law things like that they're going to they're going to appeal to objective truth in those areas but what our culture has done though is take the categories of religion and morality so what's right and wrong and then you know who god might be or how however you might live as a religious person and they've moved those into the relativism category so 
most people in our culture see religion really as something practical. It's really just something that you have found that works for you. Maybe there's practical steps like the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, or maybe you find some principles in the New Age that give you peace in your life and help you along the way and help you be a better person. Will you live your truth and I'll live my truth? You do what works for you and I'll do what works for me. That's the approach to religion. But here's the problem with that. If Christianity is true, it makes very exclusive claims about itself. If Christianity is actually true, it actually says all other religions are false. And as you just put it in the Bible, we know that Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through him. So there's this exclusive door that Christianity says you have to go through. So if Christianity is true, then it means it's true for everyone, which puts an obligation upon everyone to deal with it. You know, you're, you're, what you decide about these things, what you choose to believe about these things will have eternal consequences, not just practical outcomes for the here and the now. And so I think that, you know, I, when I was in high school, I might've told my testimony to someone and they might become really convicted. Like, well, I, I want, I want to know what the truth is. So I'm going to follow the truth. Whereas today, because of our cultural shift on what even truth means, you might share your testimony with somebody and they might say, well, that's wonderful. And they may be genuinely happy for you, but there's no conviction on their own side because they're just thinking, well, I'm so glad you have found what works for you, right? And so I think as Christians, we need to recapture the vision of objective truth and how important that is, especially when it comes to things like religion and morality. And um, even almost sometimes like take a step back before we even share the gospel to make a case for truth. Because if, if somebody even thinks, well, that's true for you and your Christianity is working for you, that's great. But what is it? You know, that's not my truth. I'm going to live my truth. So this whole uh, idea of living your truth, as we point out in the book, it actually doesn't exist. Your truth, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as something that's just true for you that's not true for everyone else, because that's just not how truth works. And so um, I think that's probably a real foundation stone that Christians need to recapture is just learning about the nature of truth and how we define truth. Okay, so Alisa, let's talk to mothers for a minute. Mothers of millennials or college kids um, who've been raised in the faith. They went to Awana's Christian school, homeschool, maybe even Christian university, and um, they're living their own truth. They've they've departed. They they still might have some faith, but they've embraced, as you said, some morality issues that are not congruent with what we see in scripture. How would you coach a mom mm-hmm. um, to approach her children she loves so much? She raised them for Jesus, mm-hmm. and yet the result isn't what she thought she was going to get. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad you asked this question because this is actually the chapter I'm working on this week (laughs) is the the (laughs) advice for, you know, what to do. And I think that, you know, as I was thinking this through, one comfort I would give to moms, because I get, I meet a lot of parents, Christian parents who have adult kids who are deconstructing or even high school kids who are deconstructing. In some cases, it's so bad, they won't, you know, they won't even be allowed to see their grandkids. And it's just, it's a horrible situation. And so I always say this, first of all, just, know inside of yourself that you're not the Holy Spirit. You're not responsible for your child's salvation. Now, there's there's a, a level of responsibility to train them up in the way they should go, to teach them the commandments of the Lord and, and all of that, of course. But ultimately speaking, um, you know, y- 
your child has to decide if they worship God or not. And so if you've taught them the right things, just know that, that that you're not the Holy Spirit, right? And I think the second thing to do is a little bit of triage. So if you have a child who's like not really accepting this anymore, kind of do a little analysis, like, are they talking to me about this? If they are talking to you about it, that's huge. And just consider that a win. Because a lot of times, as I've learned from studying the deconstruction movement, People who are deconstructing often don't talk to their parents about it. They don't tell the people that they're going to church with about it. They will deconstruct with communities online while attending churches where they're just really not talking about it in their church communities. And so if there's an open line of communication, that's great. If there's not, I think that's your first goal. Your first goal is not necessarily to fix their theology overnight or try to argue them back in, but try to just stay in their lives. Because a lot of times when people have deconstructed, They've decided that Christianity is actually toxic or morally evil or something or oppressive or abusive. And so they don't feel safe to talk about that with other Christians. So I, I always tell people, the priority number one is just stay in their life and try to get an open line of communication going. And then hopefully leading up to uh, helping nudge them toward truth at a certain point. But it's I, I think it's okay to give yourself permission to just show them love, model the real gospel in front of them, let them see the beauty of the peace and the joy and all the fruits of the Spirit lived out in your life mm-hmm. and, um, and, and be consistent and stable in that and try not to react in fear if they do open up about a doubt they might be having or a question. Just try to stay very calm and open. And even if you don't know the answer, offer to help find the answer together if you can. If you can establish that communication, I think that's number one. Um, but but for moms with younger kids, you know, we have such a great opportunity even to start as very young, teaching them about the nature of truth, how truth works, what's relativism and why that doesn't work, and, and just laying that foundation for good critical thinking, which will really serve them in years to come, I think. I love what you said about if you still have children in the home, an approach you could take to about teaching them about truth, about how we find truth. Um, You know, Elisa, what I often tell moms of young adults is, listen, they can run away from your words, but they can never escape your prayers. So your Mm. strategy might be talk less and pray more. Because as you said, we are not the Holy Spirit. Um, and pray, I believe that history belongs to those who pray. And that's mm. a powerful position for a mom to know that her prayers are making a difference, that her words maybe can't make. Um, that's really powerful so, what you just said there. They can't, they, oh. they can escape your words, but they can't escape your prayers. That's very right. good. I love that. Oh, thank you. We'll get back to the podcast in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about a life-changing opportunity beginning in January 2023. Starting January the 16th, I'll be spending Monday evenings with women across the country as we open the sacred pages of Scripture and learn from the unchanging, timeless Word of God. We're going to join on Zoom and we're going to dig deeply into a New Testament book, the book of Acts. You know, the book of Acts is the action 
thriller of the New Testament. It's exciting, miraculous, dangerous, and filled with real-life adventures that actually happened. The most interesting aspect of the book of Acts, however, is that there's no historical end to it. It ends with loose ends and with no conclusion at all. The book of Acts, I believe, is an open-ended book because it's still happening all over the world today. Jesus is still changing lives and the Holy Spirit is still bestowing on us the power of heaven. Your life, my life, was meant to be the conclusion of the book of Acts. Will it be? Registration for this eight-week Bible study is $45, and your registration includes weekly notes, weekly devotions, and eight live Zoom sessions where you'll be joined from women all across this country. If you are unable to watch it on Monday evenings, it will be available all week long. You can really watch it at your convenience. The Word of God is able to change our lives in a restorative, miraculous way. And I hope you'll join me and hundreds of other women from across the country. What a great way to begin 2023 by joining a Bible study that's going to encourage you to live the significant life for which you were born. Now, let's get back to this week's episode of Significant Women. So the name of the book is Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Alisa, what do you think is the biggest lie that Christians believe, that the Christian church is bought into? Mm. Well, you know, it's I don't the biggest one um might be that Okay, so culturally we're being told that we're basically good inside. And mm-hmm. I do think this is something that a lot of Christians have fallen into the trap of believing. Um, you know, that that what you're going to find inside of your heart is something that's basically good. So you should follow your feelings, follow your heart, trust your instincts. You know, we see all these things. And that does sound good. I get it. I get that it sounds good and and uh, something that it's like the thing you'd want to say to somebody who's down on themselves or having a hard time or something like that. Like, you're perfect just as you are. And it's true that God has created us all in His image, and there's certain gifts and talents and abilities that are unique to each person. But we always you know, I think we can't miss the but that comes next. And that's the Genesis Mm -hmm. 3 but. And that's where Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, ushering sin and death into the world, which really distorted that image. Didn't, it's not lost, but all of us have distorted the image of God in one way or another by sin. So therefore, we don't want to necessarily trust our hearts. We don't want to trust our own internal moral compass because those things are broken. Those actually have to be realigned with Christ by the renewing of our mind, by just filling ourselves with the Word of God. And yet culture is telling you, no, 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 you're good. You're perfect just as you are. You just need to do more introspection, maybe just love yourself better or do more self-care. And then you'll be able to unleash all the goodness you find inside of yourself onto the world and live your true authentic self. Whereas Christianity says, you're, you know, whatever you find in there might be something that needs, you need to repent of and you need to change about yourself. And so it's just a radically different message. But sadly, I think the church, maybe not all the church, but a lot of the church has bought into. 
Yeah, I think about the prophet Jeremiah who said, the heart is deceitful above all else. So our heart is not George Washington. It doesn't tell us the truth all the time. I'm not (laughs) saying that emotions are invalid. I mean, if you feel it, you feel it. But that doesn't mean they're all good. That doesn't mean they're all trustworthy. That doesn't mean we make decisions based upon how we feel on a certain day. So yeah, I think following your heart is a very dangerous way to live your life because my goodness, my heart is so different than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Alisa, social media. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with it. I love it because I get to tell the story of Jesus in creative, captivating ways. I love it because I'm connecting with friends and family that I wouldn't otherwise, but I also hate it Mm. because of the division it brings, because of the comparison it brings. So should Christians be on social media or not? And if they are, what's the purpose? Yeah, I think the should question is going to, that's going to be a matter of personal conscience, I think, for Christians. Um, social media just in and of itself is morally neutral. I don't think there's an, something necessarily inherently evil about it. It can be, you know, those lines yeah. can get crossed really quickly and really easily. But I would say, you know, a good some good questions to ask would be, first of all, I would say this, nobody needs it. You know, unless you absolutely have to have a profile for your job or you're, you know, promoting a ministry or a podcast or something. I mean, nobody actually needs it. And so it's okay to take a break or even just delete your pages and live your life. Like you will survive. Mm-hmm. You will not miss out on anything worthwhile. I've, And the reason I can say this is um, I actually went ahead and deleted my Twitter about a year ago. I found myself every time I was opening Twitter, I had anxiety. I had a knot in my stomach. It was always uncomfortable. It always made me angry and it was it was affecting my peace. And I just thought, I don't need this in my life. I deleted it, haven't missed it one time, not one day. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's okay to do that. Um, but I would say this, some good questions to ask ourselves would be like, is this, number one, is this causing me to sin? Is this tempting mm-hmm. me to sin? Is this stumbling me? If social media is stumbling you to sin, forget about it. Get off social media. You don't need it. Um you know, is more good coming out of it than than evil? Is this a way? And are there boundaries that I can put on it that I will stick to, to where I can, you know, I know people, they call it, uh, I have friends who they say post and ghost, you know, you, you post your, if you have a ministry or something, you want to post a message, post the message, but then don't come back and read all the toxic comments, you know, just post yeah. your message, let it stand, let people discuss it, and then go live your life. And if you have the discipline to do that, um, then, I, then I think, you know, these are the kinds of questions we should ask ourselves, or is this sucking you into something? But I also think we need to be very aware of the echo chamber it can create, you know, with the algorithms, the way they are, all of these social media platforms know how, you know, if you've clicked on something or you've been involved in a certain discussion, they're going to start feeding you more of that. And to where you can, it can actually really drown out reality and you can get into an echo chamber. And we have to be very careful about these things. So I definitely say, I think Christians should limit it. I think we should be really careful how we use it, have good boundaries on it, and then ask ourselves some really good sort of diagnostic questions. Like, is this, is the good outweighing the bad? These are just practical questions I think every Christian should probably ask. That's right. So good. Well, Alisa, do you have a favorite scripture, a lifetime scripture? Just a verse that's meant so much to you over the years? 
You know, it's uh, that's probably always changing. I I mm-hmm. find so much. Um, it's it's hard to say what would be an absolute favorite. I think just from a literary standpoint and a just glorifying of Christ standpoint, I love Hebrews. Uh, just from the beginning, where, where it goes into talking about Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. I mean, come on, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Um, but um, you know, I'm always trying to memorize scripture, so I'm trying right now to memorize the entire first chapter of First Peter, and I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through that. So that's kind of my current favorite, and it's just it's so fascinating how the Word of God never returns void; it's always new, it's always fresh. Because even as I memorize this, I'll, I'll, a different part of it will be more applicable for a particular moment I'm going through just that one section. So um, I just I love the Word of God. I do too. So First Peter, my next book is a Bible study on First Peter. No way. Comes out next summer. Yes, I That's can't awesome. wait. I love doing it. Love the research. It's such a great message for the church today, mm. I think. The, it is. The richness, it is. the wisdom. Yes. Yeah, First Peter. Yeah, and mm. it's like, you know, it's because it, I was memorizing First John before that, and that, yeah. it's like everything I start to memorize and read, I'm like, this is for right now, but it is because it's, <laughs> it's like all of it is, but especially, you know, these these very practical things that that are so countercultural. That's the thing I think we forget about when we've not been in the Word as much as you get back into it and you're like, wow, this is really different than what I'm seeing on Netflix, right? I know it. I know. And it's it's timeless. The name of my Bible study is Timeless, the Living and Enduring Word of God. Um, because you're right, there's something about the Word that meets every generation's need. Yeah. For forgiveness, for purpose, for love, for Christ. Yeah. Um, Alisa, the name of my podcast is Significant Women. So can you share with us some of the women who've deeply impacted your life over the years? Maybe it's a woman from the Bible. Maybe it's someone you knew intimately. Maybe it's somebody you've honored from afar. But mm. who have been the significant women in your life? Well, you know, in, in my real life, it would, I mean, my mother, of course, would be one of those hugely significant women modeling for me a real relationship with Jesus, not a perfect one, but that's kind of why it was so real because you, both my parents were like that. They modeled repentance and just showing us what it looked like to really love God and love others. My mom was, when I was a kid, was every weekend out at the Fred Jordan Mission. She was on staff there and brought me out to do homeless ministry as a young child and studied the Bible with me, just really discipled me well and and continues to be that kind of a person in my life. So I'd say in real life, it's, it's my mother. I think from afar, women I've admired have been people like Elizabeth Elliot and um, Corey Ten Boom, uh, where you see women who have gone through significant sufferings and trials in their life, but they've pulled not from themselves, but from Christ and somebody bigger than themselves and better than themselves to make themselves shine with the glory of God just because you see that in them. And so I've loved reading and uh, uh, Elizabeth Elliot's writings and, of course, reading about Corrie Ten Boom and some of the things she's written. I think those would be two significant ones. They're mine as well. And I would add to that mix, Ruth Bell Graham. Those are my three real heroines of the faith. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so, well, 
Thank you so much for being with me today, Elisa. I hope your book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, really hits a bullseye in the hearts of um, a generation who's wondering about their faith. So thank you for writing it. And before we go, would you pray for my listeners? Absolutely. Father, thank you so much for um, Carol and her ministry and all of her listeners. I pray in Jesus' name for every woman listening to this today that you would bring her great comfort in knowing that you are real, Lord, that if she's got, no matter what is going on with her children or the people around her, Lord, that you would give her a great sense of stability, planting her feet on the Word of God. And I pray this for all of us, myself included. Would you increase our desire for your Word? This is one of my biggest prayers, Lord, because I admit there are days when I feel apathetic. I feel like it's just, I got so much to do and I want to get into a hundred other things before I open your word. And I pray that you would reignite in all of us every single day, just an insatiable hunger and thirst for your word. May it keep coming alive to us every single day as we live in a culture that's really decided they don't think that that's the right way to go. And so I pray that we would be bold and strong and courageous as women to live for you in a countercultural way. Uh, in this cultural moment, because ultimately we know that you've chosen each and every one of us to be in our exact phase of life for this exact time and in the place that we live. And may we uh, influence our the people in our lives and may they see the beauty of the real gospel lived out in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, my pleasure. I loved it. Thanks, Carol. I did too. If you've been encouraged by today's episode, I'd like to invite you to join me other places as well. You can find us online at carolmcleodministries.com or on any of our social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. As always, don't forget to download the Carol McLeod Ministries app on your smartphone because you can get a daily dose of joy wherever you are and whatever you're doing. I also want to remind you that Alyssa's book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, is available on her website, alyssachilders.com, or as always on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. I want to leave a scripture with you as I was talking to Alyssa today. This is the scripture that resonated with me. It's from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, and this is what it says, Come now and debate our case. The Lord tells us that though our sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like pure wool. Sweet friend, my God is big enough to handle your doubts, your questions, and your uncertainties. He calls us to bring them into His presence and to honestly debate our case. All of the answers to all of your life's questions, the really hard questions, they are found on the pages of scripture. If you would only take the time to read. Thank you for joining me this week on the Significant Women podcast. Please take the time to share this episode with your friends and family members who could use a message of hope and restoration in their lives today. And remember, you're significant, and you are not significant because of your accomplishments, your education, your income, 
or even the number on your bathroom scale. You're significant because you've been made in the image of your creator, your eternal father. And he has called you to live a significant life in this generation.